Hi there, welcome to welcome back to the Shift Control Podcast. My name is Paul McAnallen. Thanks for joining me. Um, guest this week is Paul McKeever. Paul is um, currently the CEO of a Belfast-based startup called Continually. Um, but Paul has an incredible track record in growing businesses um, in a number of different industry types with services uh, through services and products. Um, the story is is really interesting and it's just really well told. He's a very interesting guy um, and can give insights from a, a business perspective, also from a motivational and quite an inspirational perspective as well. So without any more chat from me, um, I'll, I'll leave you to it. Paul, thanks very much for your your time today. We have um, tried this on a couple of occasions, so um, I'm grateful to get another go at it. Hey, good afternoon, Paul. Um, okay, so um, Paul, we, we you and I first met probably um, over uh, a short period of time in 2010, and you were working for uh, you were running a, a web design business. Is it right to call Front by Design a web design business back then? So I think it would have been a, uh, we would have described ourselves as a web design uh, business for sure. Uh, our biggest focus was on user experience. And uh, at the time in the market that we were serving, people uh, often conflated web design and user experience. We didn't talk about it necessarily as specifically, but that would have been a, a kind of big piece of what we did. That was quite pioneering um, in, in the Northern Ireland scene, I guess. Yeah, it's a, it's a, um, that's right. So let me do, uh, I guess, a proper introduction to kind of um, how that that came about. So, so whenever I left university with a um, a friend of mine, we started building websites together, and uh, and over time we gradually sort of eked out uh, what became one of the first user experience firms here in Belfast. And we, um, over a number of years, probably over about ten years. Um, gradually built it up, initially serving sort of SMEs and, and local businesses to eventually doing most of our work uh, either in Dublin or in um, in England, in places like London. And we worked with clients like uh, the BBC, Independent News and Media, worked with O2 down in Dublin, uh, as well as the National Theatre of Ireland, the Abbey Theatre, some, some great clients. And that's the kind of web design and user experience firm that you're talking about. It was myself and my co-founder, Jamie Neely, and... Uh, when we left that business, I had about 13, 14 people, and we had just won uh, some awards from the Institute of Design in Ireland for the work we were doing. That was really a kind of great sort of foundational experience uh, where you know, we were intimately involved in, in building interesting, usable, delightful things on the web. How did um, the business population locally um, respond to, to that work? Because I know that uh, UX and... Um, Design-led thinking um, is very much de rigueur now, or probably just a, it's a standard now. But back then, you'd have been people just wanted a website built, right? Well, I think that the clients that we served and the people that we worked with, they always did have some greater business purpose in mind, um, often, and they would instinctively know that. Um, you know, this is before the era of digital transformation. They would instinctively know that using digital channels to communicate was the future and that they wanted to serve their customers in the places where they wanted to communicate. And I felt like those projects always started from those beginnings. Um, but you're right that the vocabulary and the, the language around user experience and the 
thinking that people brought in terms of their expectations was definitely different. It was a lot less information um, or as a lot, you know, the, the kind of the views around design thinking were, were not were not widely held then. And there definitely was a tendency whenever you know, you're, you're talking to people about the projects they have in mind, those are competitive situations where they're not just talking to you, they're talking to other people. And I think a lot of the other people that we've been speaking to certainly would have shaped their view of the work to be done to really focus on the nuts and bolts and the features. And so one of the things that we often found ourselves doing, and sometimes it worked and, and sometimes it didn't, was to try and sort of abstract ourselves from that because what we found is that the projects didn't succeed because of the number of pages that you built or the number of widgets that they included, but they succeeded depending on whether or not the company's business goals were met by helping their users, their customers accomplish what they wanted to do. And so that was, a, I guess, a very different way of thinking. And you know, we would often go to a pitch where we'd be invited to write a proposal, which we would do, and we would be asked to come and explain our thinking. And so we'd go to a meeting, and I recall lots of times where it's happened, and someone would be leaving the room as you were going in. And uh, you know, we would be going in and really, I, I guess, evangelizing this concept of serving user needs as the driver of those business outcomes. And that the usability and, and I guess the delight or satisfaction in those experiences were what mattered most to us in terms of being effective. And the other partners that you know, people would be considering would be talking about the technology platforms, the concept management systems, the hosting environments, the, you know, the number of pages, and you know, a lot of uh, important, but in my mind, um, mechanical aspects of, of how you build things on the web. And um, to me, it often felt like the kind of the cart before the horse. And so depending on whether the client agreed with us, if they liked what we were saying and they, they shared our perspective, you know, we'd get hired. And, and if they didn't, they would, they would pick the other foot. And so I guess, you know, we won some, we lost some. And the, I suppose the big irony of it all is that even back then, most of those companies would have professed to have had a full understanding of their customers in the in the offline world and would have aspired to be meeting their needs continually but yet couldn't really migrate that thinking to an online world yeah it's hard i think um i think all businesses struggle to be customer centered and even ones where it's a cultural value and it's something that people care deeply about um it requires a much higher degree i think of operational focus and intent to, to achieve and to realize that than, than it would seem. And so you, you have this um, strange and kind of almost unfortunate situation where people profess the desire to be customer-centric, but when they don't practice it with the intensity that it requires, it becomes lip service. And so you end up with the worst situation, which is the executive perception that we are customer-focused, but actually, uh, you know, in reality, it's not the case. And that's actually much worse than being self-aware that you are ignoring your customers deliberately. It's worse to think that you're serving them when you're not. No, I, I, that's very true. That's something that I, I would like to touch on again later. I'm, I'm conscious of the journey that you made from the time that we met in 2010. You moved to... Um, or you set up a business within the business called Typecast. Can you talk a little bit about that and also how that went on to um, the 2012 um, buyout? So the, so let me kind of plot out the milestones and then we'll kind of walk, walk through them. So the, um, the sequence was that we spent um, a number of years until 2010, as you mentioned, myself, my co-founder of the team, building this, um, this professional services firm where someone would hire us for a project. And as we were building those projects, 
and he, we'll be practicing design. And we we um, we noticed as we were building a site for a um, uh, a company that we were working with that uh, there was a new technology that allowed you to use custom typefaces in web pages. Previously, you um, you couldn't do that. So that was the kind of first milestone where we had this realization that there was a change in technology. We ended up building a product around that, and I'll kind of talk you what happened. And then the next milestone, which you mentioned, is sort of a couple of years later in 2012, that product business was acquired by a U.S. firm called Monotype. And I spent uh, four years there, leaving in sort of 2017. Uh, and then um, a little bit after that uh, was the next milestone where I started my new startup continually, uh, which, is, which is what I'm working on now. And so I guess there's kind of been this interesting uh, mix of different perspectives and experiences along the way. Yeah, going back to yeah the the I suppose in 2012 it was a very publicised takeover um, or buy by by Monotype and it was um, it was almost like Nirvana for most startups today they would that's what they aspire to do right they well not not everybody I guess but a lot of people aspire to get to that level where they're at least considered to be taken over. Ha huh. well so it was never a desire or an aspiration for me I, I can tell you so. I am, and in fact, m- many people at the time would have thought I was almost unemployable and unsuitable to work in a larger company. <laughs> like, like, like my wife and my mother would have would have <laughs> both agreed on that. And uh, you because know, we'd spent a long time building an independent practice, and we had all the advantages of a boutique. You know, where you know we were deliberately shaped to be a certain size, to have a, a mix of skills, and to be deeply involved in the work. And what happened is. The, the, I guess there was a change in the world that we saw, which was that when you were building websites from sort of 2000 to 2010, when, which were formative years for me, uh, if you wanted to make the website aesthetically pleasing, to even make it readable, then um, you wanted to use a mixture of typefaces and you didn't want to rely on the fonts that were available on the user's device. And that meant opening up Photoshop licensing or buying a, a custom typeface, installing it on your computer, writing out some text in Photoshop, cutting that out, saving that image as a, a GIF or a PNG, embedding it into the HTML page. And then it meant that when your client came to edit that text, they'd have to replace that image. And, and that was really a terrible workflow. And so when this new change in technology emerged where you could have these custom typefaces in the cloud linked, uh, as it were, then that to me seemed like such an obvious change that of course everyone will want to do this. And uh, the catalyst for that was that um, in about 2010 or 2009, um, you started to see the, you know, the iPhone effect with this proliferation of mobile devices was still just beginning. And what happened is if you were downloading a web page with all these images, then you know, it wasn't really search friendly and you didn't have real text, which meant that uh, it was really hard to make that page adapt properly for a smaller screen size, especially if you had a bandwidth constraint. And so there was this shift in emphasis where uh, initially Opera and then other browser vendors decided to support custom text, and very quickly this became a mainstream way of building web pages. And so we thought, this is great. You know, We can see why it makes sense from a user's perspective. It gives the business the aesthetic and brand experience that they want. And you know, the workflow is going to be great. And what we found is that this new technology didn't really have the tooling and the, um, the supporting infrastructure to be able to do things easily. And we found all kinds of rough edges as we were working through our early projects with WebPonts. So things like the, you know, from the very practical sense of, well, you know, 
that workflow I described at the beginning was terrible, but at least you knew the, the kind of optimal efficient way to do it. Whereas with this new set of tools, you had to build uh, things that you were going to make in HTML and then show them to the client. And that meant that, you know, that gave you great feedback because what they would see would be real, but it would be a very slow process and iterating and responding to change would be hard. And so there were all these trade-offs we started to find and it became clear to us that actually there's a big opportunity to build new tooling here. And at the time, you know, Adobe was um, still selling boxed software. And so if you wanted to buy Creative Cloud, it came in a box. And this was before uh, their acquisition of Typekit. And that was before the announcement of Creative Cloud. And so we were in this really interesting point where we were coming to the end of the kind of um, the sort of uh, the legacy model that they had. And we thought, you know, there's an opportunity to build some niche tooling here. And if we solve these workflow problems, it would be great for us and it would be great promotion for our user experience agency. And so uh, as a result, we decided to, um, to build a free tool that we thought would be useful and to give it away and to see what we found. That tool ended up becoming very popular. And uh, over time, that kind of business transitioned in a series of kind of stages so eventually it became our main focus. And by the time we were acquired by Monotype, we had about 20,000 people using that product. We had uh, developed commercial partnerships with Monotype, but also with Adobe Typekit, with Google, with uh, a number of independent um, type companies like Fontech at the time. Um, we were also talking to Fontshop, to WebType uh, and others. And so we had... Um, really kind of steeped ourselves in this this particular market and we built what was really i thought um a terrific tool and so that that tool went on to win some awards and was sort of recognized by the people using it as being very helpful and it was i guess directly adjacent to what monotype who are sort of the world's biggest type company it was sort of right in there sort of sweet spot of things that were emerging as you know future trends and so um, when we were thinking about our options, about how we might grow that business in the future, having funded the development of that product with you know, our own money, and so Jamie and I spent our own cash to build that product, you know, we had all our eggs in the typecast basket. And when we were asked you know, um, about the opportunity of, of working as part of a bigger organization, it made a lot of sense to us to see how we might be able to do what we're doing, but on a bigger scale with the resources that a bigger company could bring and also with you know, without the same level of risk where, you know, there'd be a slightly different level of risk working inside a bigger organization than doing it as an independent. Whenever you, um, you mentioned earlier that, that you, you spent four years then um, working within Monotype, did you find that restrictive or did they give you a degree of freedom that allowed you to work as you have been working? So, so I think like all jobs and, and all relationships, you've got to be careful about the universality of what you say. So there's, there's, I guess, several different stages that that experience went through. And so, you know, day one is very different to your final day at the end of four years. And, uh, you know, I, I'm really glad I had the experience to work. It was, you know, a 700-person company when I left. Uh, I spent a lot of time interacting with, you know, really nice and also very smart and capable people. And so I feel like I learned a lot uh, during that time. And what happened is in the first year or so, first 18 months, my role was really strictly about uh, making the Typecast product successful, integrating the business with the, the parent company and making it um, you know, an integral part of what they were doing. And then you know, 
I and the team brought a, a unique perspective at the time to that company where we had been a practicing design team and we had built cutting edge digital products. And so we had unique experiences because of that. And that meant that you know, we were able to do more than just build the typecast product. And, uh, and so as a result, there were other opportunities, other market opportunities for that business to grow that we started to become involved in and I started to become involved in. Sort of related and sort of extending this theme of how uh, device proliferation was changing the way that people created and consumed content. You know, that didn't just lead to the need for new authoring tools, but it meant that there were new licensing use cases for the type and there were um, new technology products and platforms that could be built to enable those. And so, you know, we were sort of, you know, um, just the right group of people at the right place at the right time to work on those things. And so after the initial period, I spent, uh, you know, two or three years at the company um, working on those other things. So I worked on, and I, I led the development of a low-cost subscription product for individuals to kind of give them a wide range and selection of, of type choices, kind of like Spotify for fonts. So that was really cool. Uh, I also um, helped to develop an, an, a partner strategy, thinking about how we could get uh, monotypes, um, incredible range of typefaces into the hands of creative people everywhere. And, uh, and I also worked on and, and led the development of an enterprise license, uh, which that companies who might be much bigger, maybe a global business where they have brands across different countries, different product sets, different use cases. There's a lot of complexity in their footprint and what they're doing in communication and having to have a kind of a spot solution to license type in each of those use cases leads to a lot of friction. And so the, you know, there was um, a sense or a feeling in the business about you know, whether we might be able to uh, increase revenue by solving that. And, uh, and I was really fortunate to be able to partner with um, you know, a lot of people across the business on, on each of those initiatives, and especially on the enterprise license, to see how we might take that sort of um, that inkling and, and turn it into what has become a commercially very successful product. And so um, you know, I, I had a whole bunch of different experiences there. And then um, I guess at the end of that experience, I ended up um, leaving the business and thinking about, you know, what would I do next? So you, you were, you're as passionate, you're probably more passionate about being an entrepreneur because continually was your next venture and is your next venture. Can you give us a little bit of uh, background into that? Yes. So the premise behind continually is that you should never miss a lead from your website. And so um, one of the, the things that we were thinking about when we were starting is that, um, but the way with the typecast products, we were talking about this change in technology and this change in the world about the way that people work with type. I think there's a kind of similar change that uh, you know that I see uh, around the way that sales and marketing is being um, uh, implemented and delivered. And so, uh, if you think about in 2010 when we met, and, and 2002 whenever Jamie and I were starting Design by From, digital was kind of the new thing, and now for most businesses certainly today or in the future, it's going to be perhaps the primary communication vehicle for how they reach their audiences. And so we're coming to sort of the, you know, the, the realization of that, that happening. And that means that, you know, if people um, buying things or getting in touch with you through your website is really important, then you want to make sure that you serve them as well as you possibly can. And a lot of companies use things, uh, use technologies like web forms or they use live chat to, to communicate with their, their customers. Um, but when someone visits your site and they want to get in touch, they expect you to reply straight away. 
And if I fill in a form, and I, I personally don't think that's a very friendly or, or nice experience to have, uh, you know, you don't know when you're going to hear back. Uh, and the difficulty is that there's good research that shows that when companies respond quickly to their customers and their inquiries, they're much more likely to close the business. But on average, it takes about 48 hours, uh, I believe, for a company to respond to an inquiry that comes through a form. And if you think about that, you know, a lot of the businesses that are now going to really depend on all of this inbound marketing and all of this inbound interest don't necessarily have all of the processes and all of the technology in place after that person gets in touch with them because they invest so much up front in getting the kind of the shop front right. And so that, that's where I think we see the opportunity for continually that this new wave is really about automation through the whole sales and marketing stack. And I guess I think of automation as being more than just sending people emails. I actually think there's an incredible opportunity to use uh, technology to make those experiences that people are having in their buying journeys much more relevant, much more intelligent, much more personal. And, and just, I mean, so in my head, I use the, the car industry as an example. It's like generating traffic to a showroom and not having the salespeople there to speak to the, the potential customers. Right. The, the difficulty is that people, is exactly the, the way I think about it, is that people have these analogies of you know, operating in a showroom. And in the physical world, the showroom closes at 5 p.m. and everyone goes home. But people who buy cars, I bet a very substantial portion of them are looking at cars in the evening time when the kids have gone to bed. And I, I know that's when I do those kinds of things. And at that point, you know, the showroom is closed, but that's when your customers are still interested in buying. And if they submit an inquiry to a car dealership at 7 p.m. at night, you know, that's when they're interested in buying the car. And then when that person contacts them at 9.30 the next morning, they're at work now, they've shifted context, they're maybe speaking to their boss and they can't, you know, start to pick this up again. And I think that's a missed opportunity. And so you know, we see a lot of businesses where they have a very high proportion of their interest coming outside the nine to five. That could be, you know, because of the nature of the product, uh, or it could be that they're selling across time zones. You know, we live in a global world, and a lot of businesses get interest from all kinds of countries. And so, you know, the um, that could be here in Europe, we're selling into the U.S., but even in the U.S., you know, they're servicing countries all around the world. So I think that there are some big kind of customer-driven um, behaviors and changes that we're only starting to unpack now. Is is it? Um the the opportunity for your business then is particularly particularly big but with that comes a challenge of effort and reward and where you target um your efforts to try and uh, secure customers and clients and uh, within business sectors how how do you scale up then how do you make this an attractive proposition to businesses in america or throughout the world or do you start locally what, what is uh, um how do you tackle that yeah so so I think when I think about the, the kind of similarity across those different journeys we talked about of building a product around type with typecast and now building continually, which is more about sales and marketing, you, you kind of think, well, they're, they're really very different. But actually, the challenge as an entrepreneur in those situations is that at this stage where we are now, the focus is always on getting to what people call product market fit. Mm. The idea that you have a market, a group of people with a set of needs and your product is a good or attractive solution for them. And uh, what's interesting is that uh, I think it was our sort of intense focus on product market fit at, at Typecast that you know really helped us to build a useful, delightful product because you know we came into work a whole team of people thinking every day about how do you make this product insanely useful and delightful. And I guess so I feel really um, lucky to have a set of experiences and uh, ideas that come from that 
which uh, are very generalizable. And so I do the same thing now with continually. I, I, I go to sleep and I wake up, uh, sadly, often thinking about, well, how do you get, you know, how do you get um, to product market fit? How do you make sure that what you're building is something that um, you can scale? And I think the scaling portion comes after then. So now we, we've, you know, we're getting a really good response. We've got good traction. For example, we were on Product Hunt last month where we um, were the number two product of the day. And that's a, kind of, that's a global community of people talking about products. So that was really exciting. Uh, we're getting really good feedback from our early users in terms of the, um, the MPS surveys that we do and the, the conversations that we have. And so I see lots of good indicators that we are on that journey. But what I do is I, I, I always sort of um, start with the perspective that, you know, the, um, there is room to improve and that uh, for me, the best example of product market fit I heard someone describe is when you have the iPhone and there's a queue of people around the block waiting for it. And so until I see a queue of people around the block at my office waiting for continually, I will always be thinking that there's more that we could do here. And, and going back to... Um the transition from front to typecast and, to, um, you know, product market fit. You had, you were in a, in a, in a state of flow then really as a business, weren't you? Like you were um, uh, making various iterations. You were uh, talking to the marketplace real time. You had uh, a cohort of people who were really energized by what you were doing because you solved the problem that they evidently had because your people in your office also had the same problem. Um, so would it have been easier to make the transition um, in typecast because now you're into a, a, an entirely different world and you don't have the flow, you don't have the continual, maybe you're, you're building the continual validity and you're also working in an industry um, that you were really familiar with and design. Um, a, is it much more challenging now? Well, so I guess what I learned, I, I, I don't know if we, um, we've talked about this before, but uh, Patrick Collison of Stripe used the analogy of cycling, you know, that, uh, that as they've scaled that business that, um, it's like cycling that uh, as you get fitter, you get faster on the bike, but cycling is still hard. And, and I think that is really very true. So I, I, I guess I, I do find that there's a lot of general experiences that you can take from previous experiences, but the process of building new products and, and serving customers is, is still an intrinsically difficult thing to do. What I've, I guess I'm really fortunate is that uh, the... Um, the first time around, we had, as you say, that kind of deep practical experience about building things on the web that meant that we could understand intimately what those pain points and frictions would be. And I guess then the experience working in a large organization where um, I had commercial responsibility and you know, uh, worked at a more senior level looking at across a whole business unit and a whole market, what market needs we might serve and what products we should build, um, I guess has kind of maybe helped me this time where when we were going through that experience, um, one of the things that I learned is that, you know, there's this, I guess the insight that I took from that is that there's a perception that sales and marketing is, is a kind of mature industry and that sales and marketing technology is sort of solved and that you sort of, you buy Salesforce and you maybe have an email marketing platform and the, you know, those are the kind of the, the big sort of, you know, um, things in the stack. And actually, when you go in as an operator and you work, um, in a more commercial role, you realize that, you know, actually it's not at all solved. There's this huge fragmentation in terms of the sales and marketing technology landscape. There are thousands of products out there. And that um, I kind of look at that and I think, well, um, that's a really exciting place to be. 
because when you start to unpick all of the challenges that sales and marketing teams have, there's just a tremendous amount of friction that still exists. And so we've, we've picked one narrow slice of that we think is a really good starting point uh, for, for a big business. But, um, but I guess I have just a different set of insights and experiences because of the, the journey that I've been on than maybe I did when I was building the last product. And, and what's kind of interesting about that is that when I was thinking about doing another startup, it would have been really tempting. It was really tempting to say, well, you know, I could build another digital agency and another user experience firm because I enjoyed that so much. Or maybe I could build another product related to type and working with fonts because those were good experiences too. And part of it for me was a deliberate choice that you have to push yourself to learn and you have to push yourself to acquire new skills. And so um, there's a delicate balance there for sure because you, you want to make sure you have enough of a foundation. But I guess I'm really glad that I, I push myself to the edge of my experience so that I'm learning new things. And that's, I guess, the exciting part of working in a, in a startup or, or a growth business. So like the, the, the whole idea about, about, about um, a, enhancing the, the online customer experience. Um, so from my perspective, I, I can think of five or six businesses that I'm working with currently um, across very, very varied industry sectors that are spending so much money uh, uh, getting people to go to their website. And when they go to the website, like uh, they, as you say, like even on a Saturday morning or a Sunday, whatever, the, the potential for engagement or interaction is really, really poor. It's poor to non-existent. Some of these businesses are very successful in their own right. And it, you made me think of the, you know, it's the, the old, the sales funnel. I think the sales funnel, um, AIDA, it was invented back in the late 1800s, you know, so it, it's really, really dated, but it's still, um, in my mind, you know, it still works. And if you get the people's awareness and their attention and then give them an opportunity for a call to action, but you fail to deliver on the call to action, that's just so disappointing. Right. And I think the, the kind of like when you dig into that, I, I kind of see exactly what you're saying. And the difficulty is that, you know, you have businesses that have started to embrace digital transformation, but don't yet have all the underlying ingredients that you need to make it real. And uh, I think that's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for those businesses and it's an opportunity to build technology to help them. And so the difficulty is, I think you, know, you can scale the amount of traffic that you have to your website and you can scale the amount of content you produce, but it's really hard to scale the personal touch. And so... Yeah. If your call to action is about getting on a call with someone uh, or getting your question answered, uh, that's something that, um, you know, if you set the expectation with your buyers that that's the kind of experience they're going to have and you don't live up to it, you're right. It's, it's a really disappointing experience and those people won't come back. And so I think that's where, you know, I see the world changing is that in the future, if you fast forward another 10 years, say, and imagine we were talking in 2010 and we're talking in 10 years from now, I guess I, I don't think that will still be true. I think that by that point, you will start to see that the emphasis will have shifted from filling the top of your AIDA funnel and putting people in at the beginning. And the focus is really going to be at the at the um, the bottom. And in fact, you hear people talk about hourglass funnels now, where mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, the, the way that I think about it is that what you're doing is not just acquiring customers, but you're building advocates. And so you want the, as they go to that call to action, you want that experience to be a great one. And you want them to be delighted and to be satisfied and to get what they need. And th there's good research that shows that 
as hard as we try, that many people who use the web don't find the information they're looking for. And when they do get in touch, they get frustrated. And so I think we're really just at the beginning of actually quite a big shift in terms of how we satisfy those needs. And I think there's a great opportunity to use even very simple automation at the minute is a, is a big step up for no response. And then if you imagine as you go out over a sort of five or 10 year horizon, think about, uh, and we are thinking about what some of the possibilities are when you start to use things like machine learning and you start to bring more intelligence. So, you know, the, this is really, I think, quite exciting when you think about, you know, this, um, this construct, which works quite well. And we, we, um, we have a lot of scope, I think, to make it work better. Paul, you're in, um, a, in the Ormo Baths in, in Belfast. Um, that's probably a real, well, it's not probably, it's definitely a real hive of startup and tech startup activity. Um, what's the landscape like for startup now? If you were starting up today, um, what, a, what advice would you give and um, what advice would you have given yourself um, back in the day? Oh, I... Uh... I guess the way I would I would think about that is, um, well, I suppose I'd reflect on maybe two or, the, two or three of the things that I've learned that have been most helpful to me, and um, and I'm not sure if I knew these things at the beginning or not, but but I think the the first is definitely about um, about uh, I guess ego and having a growth mindset, and you know um, it would have been very easy for me starting a second business. Uh, or starting another product to think, okay, well, gosh, I already know this. I did this already. I'll just do what I did before. And uh, I, I made a kind of deliberate and conscious decision that the best way to be successful was to emulate some of the things that had worked well for me. And um, I have always been, I guess, of the belief that um, there's much more to learn than, than you already know. And so uh, and it's really easy to, to get trapped in the kind of the perspective of knowing all the answers. And so um, I, I think uh, as a as a startup founder, being deliberate about that mindset and approaching things to think about what you can learn rather than what you know is, is a really great perspective because if you test some of the things that you see, you know, sometimes you might meet someone who has a great idea about their product and is convinced of the benefits of it. And in that sense, I think you're really putting your ego and your desire to be uh, excited first whereas if you approach the same conversation or the same question slightly differently you think okay well i'm really excited about this problem i've seen people having and i'm excited to learn about how we could solve that or how we could attract those type of customers or whatever it might be you, you can have just very different um experiences and you can learn a lot more and you can you can get a lot more done and i think that the kind of like the second corollary part of that is the growth mindset that you want to be thinking all the time about what can you learn you know, I, I love reading. I, I read and recommend books to people constantly. And uh, it's because I think you want to be able to build on good ideas as a starting point. And whether or not you, um, you, you take those ideas or whether or not you test them and find they don't work in this context, uh, I think it almost doesn't matter. But the idea that there's something new to learn is, is so important because um, the... I guess the um, the generation before me, my parents, the the model was that you you went to school, you acquired an education, you went to work, and the industries were largely static. You know, the um, you mentioned AIDA being uh, invented a hundred years ago, and a lot of those uh, professions, you know, they had a, a stable body of knowledge. 
But now we're in an industry or a world where things change constantly and nothing is ever the same and the world is moving around us. And the only way not to fall behind or to be lost is if you're moving as fast or faster. And so I think what's great about a growth mindset is that if you're in these periods of intense change, is that they offer terrific opportunities for you as an individual. Because if you go into it thinking about how you can learn and pushing yourself to be the best version of yourself that you can be, then really anything is possible. And, and I certainly felt that at times. Whereas if you go in thinking, uh, you know, I already know a lot of stuff and I, I feel good about that, then maybe you don't um, make the most of the opportunities that come along. And I think for a startup founder who, who's beginning today, I guess that, you know, that's probably that mindset and set of perspectives is, is the key. And I think it's that way of thinking that drives the other things that are important. It's that way of thinking that drives um, product market fit. It's that way of thinking that drives your velocity as you build a startup, which is important as well. And that's uh, going to help you build a great team. It's going to drive a lot of the important outcomes for you. Paul, we, we've run out of time here and I'd like to get a chance to continue this because um, I, it's really, really interesting, your, your perspective on everything and, and I, there's a lot of stuff that I think people who are starting up um, right now could, could, could benefit greatly from some of your insight and wisdom. Um, th- thanks very much for taking time today. I, if we can um, maybe arrange to do this again sometime, I'd be really grateful, but thank you so much for taking time today. It's been really enjoyable and very, very interesting. Terrific. Thank you so much, Paul.